This evening we are continuing our recording of the Epistle to the Ephesians, and our study is in the first half of chapter 3. Ephesians 3, verses 1 to 13. But, as you now know, it is our custom at this meeting to join together in reading a portion of Scripture. And so we are suggesting to those who shall be listening to this recording that they would like to share this, to just switch off for a moment or two, while they, together with us, read the 26th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. Acts 26. This evening, we reach the seventh and closing section of the doctrinal portion of Ephesians. When we examine the epistle as a whole, we find there are seven portions devoted to the revelation of new doctrine, and seven balancing portions which work it out into practice. The doctrine occupies chapters 1, 2, and a half of 3, and the practice occupies chapter 4, 5, and 6, and in the centre, uniting them together, is the prayer with which chapter 3 ends. Now this evening, the most of the passage we're going to consider is a parenthesis. Something put in brackets. But what a parenthesis. This section, 3, 1 to 13, if taken to pieces and examined separately, practically puts its finger upon the essential features of the present calling, the need for right division, the peculiar ministry of the Apostle Paul, and so on. We should have to consider why he calls himself the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. We should have to consider, as related with that, what literature there is which is connected with Paul the prisoner, and we name some the prison epistles. We should then also have to differentiate between the mystery and the mystery of Christ. We should have to touch upon those things this evening, but there is a tremendous amount packed into this, this section that we cannot hope to deal with at all adequately at the time at our disposal. But it's a poor speaker who wastes all his time telling you he wished he had a lot more. I'm only warning you uh, that um, we do attempt impossibilities in this place, but the days of miracle, so far as we are concerned in these things, well have passed. So should we look at this? And first of all, why do we speak of this as a parenthesis? Or a section in brackets. We notice the way in which it opens. Verse 1. For this cause, and we cast our eye down the chapter, and we come to verse 14, and it says, for this cause. Well now, is he starting something all over again? Or is he picking up something that he dropped for a moment? He's picking up something that he was going to say, but he couldn't say because he was conscious he got to do a lot of explaining. Of course, Paul wasn't actually speaking to somebody at this moment. He was writing to them at a distance. But he was doing what we have to do when we speak to folks. Sometimes when we start to explain something in the Scriptures, we see a vague look go over the mind of the, of the eyes of the person, and we say to ourselves, oh dear, I'm going to go back over this, and then you start explaining. You take a long time to get through, and you may never do, because you lose the thread, or the time's up, and the person goes. 
So what does the Apostle going to say? Well, we come to chapter 2. And we find that he has been speaking about the constitution of these believing people, not here as the body of Christ, but as the temple, a habitation of God, and we noticed last time, not merely through the Spirit, but a habitation of Christ, the Vatican manuscript, a habitation or a dwelling of Christ in spirit. Well now, supposing we miss out the first part of chapter 3 and pick up verse 14, for this cause, what cause? Why the fact that you are to be a dwelling for Christ? For this cause I pray that, verse 17, Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. You see, that's the straightforward bit that he was going to do. But oh, what a lot he had to explain before he could get there. But aren't we thankful he did? Aren't we thankful he thought to himself, I saw a peculiar look go over the eyes of some of those Ephesians, I better wait a bit. And we profit by it. So that we come again to chapter 3, verse 1. What did he say? For this cause, because you are constituted a dwelling place for Christ in spirit, for this cause I, all the prisoner of Jesus Christ, the you Gentiles, if you... You can see you stop, can't you? Do you remember enough of your grammar from the old days at school that you could not have a sentence without a verb in it? See, the verb is the thing that does something. Well, he's never got there. He doesn't say, for this cause I, all the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, do anything. No, he stops. He says, if you have heard of the dispensation, he's gone off, you see. So, it looks as though he had said something and his mind ticked and he said, oh, I'll have to stop and explain this a bit. He had called himself by a new title. The servants of God have been called apostles for a long time. And they've been called prophets for a much longer time. But who ever heard of a person glorying in the title, the prisoner of Jesus Christ? Well, he said, that's me. And in chapter 4, he just alters the title because he's going over from doctrine to practice. <coughs> And he says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord. It's the same prisoner, and it's the same Christ. But in the doctrine, he's the prisoner of Christ, and in the practice, he's the prisoner of the Lord. And when he was writing his last epistle, he said to Timothy, Be not thou thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner. So you see, something about this man is associated with prison, not as an accident, but as a part of his calling. He had been in prison before. In fact, he says in one of his epistles, in prison oft. So he'd been in prison many times. But those imprisonments were a part of the accidents of his calling in the day in which he lived. But he said, this prison has got a specific reference to my ministry. We read in the 26th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, that the apostle had referred to the fact that the Lord had appeared unto him on the road to Damascus, and he had set him apart for a certain ministry. But he'd also told him something. And he said, I will yet appear unto you. I've given you one ministry, get on with that, Paul, and then I'm coming to you again, and I'm going to give you another ministry. And he said, that's come. I've now received my marching orders, and the prison is a part of it. As I said, 
This also holds us up for the whole of the evening to make sure we've seen all this prison ministry decoded from chapter 20. It's envisaged in other parts, but we'd have to come back to that again possibly later. Here we have to realise that he takes this peculiar title to himself and he has a very special relation to you and to me. We come under the ministry not only of Paul the Apostle, but of Paul the prisoner of Jesus Christ. For he says it was for you Gentiles. He wasn't in prison merely because the Jews hated him. He wasn't in prison because there was a slip up in Roman justice. He was in prison because for the Gentiles that was God's way in which this new revelation was coming. If you ask me why God should find it necessary to have a man in prison before he could reveal this truth, well don't ask me, I don't know. But I've learned this lesson friends, from a long while ago, that when anybody says he doesn't know, when he doesn't know, he's more likely to believe when he says he does know. I don't know everything, not quite yet. But I do see this, that in the wisdom of God, when Satan had done his utmost to stop the truth, he couldn't stop the revelation of God going beyond the bars of a Roman prison. And I can imagine the Apostle Paul, the champion of liberty of ever a man, he said, if it's prison for me, Lord, prison I choose. And so we may have to adopt much of the same attitude. Well now, he says, I'm the prisoner, I'm the prisoner of Jesus Christ, I'm the prisoner for you. Oh, he says, this is where he stops. Oh, he says, now, I have made a claim, haven't I? It's one thing for a man to be sure that he's been called of Christ. It's another thing for him to make you understand it. You try to, you try to think how you would prove to anybody that you had been personally called, set apart, and equipped for a certain ministry. You wouldn't have any means of doing it. You might say that you emphatically believe it to be true, and the other one says, oh yes, I've heard that before. And so we have. Any amount of persons who've claimed to have had a revelation from God have turned out to be either deceiving themselves, or deceiving you. But this apostle, he had one way of proving it, which our Saviour himself adopted. Of course, some of you know what I'm going to say. Our Saviour, when he was here, he performed miracles. He healed all manner of sickness, all manner of disease. And he became so popular and so known that people began to expect and they brought before him a man sick of the palsy. And naturally, they expected, he would say to the man sick of the palsy, arise, take up thy bed and walk or something, and instead of that being a marvel, he'd say, oh, he's cured another one. But the time had come to make that miracle mean something. You see, Christ wasn't a mere wonder worker. He was giving witness that he'd been sent of God. Like Moses. When he went into the presence of Pharaoh, he performed a miracle just to show that God was with him. So Christ said to the man sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Ooh, ooh, this man blasphemed For none can forgive sins but God only. So our Savior said, Look, I can't prove to you that that man's sins are forgiven, neither can he. That's known to God, that's all. There's no obvious difference in the man sick of a palsy, now his sins are forgiven. 
Now then, supposing after I've made that statement which is blasphemy if it isn't true, supposing now I say to the man, after I've said that, rise up and walk. Supposing God permits the miracle now, won't that be the finest proof? And he did. And their mouths have stopped. Well now Paul didn't work any miracle. But what he said was this. We'll look at the verses in a moment. He said, look, I've made a claim. I know. I know. I'm claiming that to me has been entrusted some peculiar element of truth, which is as I call the mystery. But I can't prove it. But he says, I will do this. I will prove it in the way that Christ proved his claim. I'll ask you to consider the testimony of others and compare it with mine. So let him speak for himself, shall we? For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, all that is, taking for granted, there's quite a number of different words translated here. This is all, of course, I'm assuming. See? I'm assuming that you've heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to you, Lord. Don't forget that to you, Lord, the Gentile. Notice it down in verse 13. Wherefore I desire that ye faith not of my tribulations for you, which is your glory. It begins with you and it ends with you. His prison and the revelation given to him. His uh, tribulations and the glory, see, comes back to it. Just the same, beginning and end, for you. How that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery. This is his claim. He didn't say Gamaliel taught it to him when he sat at his feet. He didn't say he studied the Old Testament scriptures and found it there. Because if he had, he could have said, well you read Jeremiah so and so chapter and verse so and so and you'll see it. But he couldn't. He said this is by revelation. How is any man, whether he's an apostle or a prophet or whoever he may be, going to prove to anybody else that God revealed something to him? That's known to you and God only. But he said, look, I have got some credentials. Verse, at the end of verse 3, they've got a brackets again. As I wrote before in a few words, whereby when you read you may understand my knowledge of the mystery of Christ. Now here I think we've got to watch our step. So many of God's people have said that the mystery is not something which is unique, something that nobody else has heard before, because he says in verse 5, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men as it is now revealed. They said it was known, but not so clearly as now. And the reason that mistake has been made is because they have assumed that the mystery that was entrusted to Paul was the mystery of Christ. No, no, he said. I'm claiming now to receive the mystery and I'm asking you to consider the mystery of Christ which was made known to all the prophets and all saints. So don't close your brackets at the end of verse 4. Go right on into verse 5. We'll come back again and then start this. So you see, look, we've got a big brackets the whole of verses 1 to 13, and we've got a little bracket in it, verses 3, 4, and 5. No wonder it's a bit complicated, isn't it? So we've got to resolve these brackets. First of all, when he says, as I wrote before in a few words, what does that mean? Well, somebody tells us that means an, uh, some epistle, that Paul had written an epistle, explaining all this to the Ephesians. 
And you say, what a tragedy. God couldn't save it, it's lost. Do you mean to tell me that God has embedded in an epistle a statement that would explain the whole thing and he couldn't save it? Somebody destroyed it and it's lost. Well, if that's the case, our God is not the God that we thought he was. But this can have another meaning. He may be referring to something that is already said in this epistle. He said, now you look back. Look back to what I've written concerning the mystery of Christ. Now this is where our ignorance comes in. Mine as well as yours, friend, we're all united. The Septuagint version, the Greek version of the Old Testament, has got a word associated with, with this, the 8th Psalm, which ought to have put us all wise straight away. But we ignore some of these gifts of God, pass them over, and by the side of the 8th Psalm, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, it says, the secrets of the Son. The secrets of the Son. So when I read the 8th Psalm and it says, What is man that thou art mindful of him, thou crownest him with glory and honour, thou bainest him a throne lower than the angels? That's not speaking only of Adam in the past, it's speaking of Christ in the future. And now you're prepared for what I'm going to say to you, aren't you? He wrote a thought in a few words in chapter 1 about the 8th Psalm, which is the mystery of Christ. Look at it. Verse 21. Heart above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also that which is to come, and have put all things under his feet. Now those words, he hath put all things under his feet, are taken from Psalm 8. So Paul says, look friend, read Psalm 8. How far did David get in the mystery of Christ? How much was put under his feet? All sheep, adoption, all that pass through the paths of the sea. Now he says, look and see what I put under his feet. All principality, power, might, dominion, and every name that is named. He says, am I not writing, challenging you and saying that I have a greater knowledge of the mystery of Christ than any other writer before me? And if I have a greater knowledge of the mystery of Christ, can't you believe that I also have associated with it a brand new revelation of a calling that demanded that new knowledge? It's no good Paul receiving a, a revelation of the mystery that puts you at the right hand of God in heavenly places if he forgot to put Christ there first. You couldn't contemplate being at the right hand of God far above all these marvellous beings and Christ somewhere else, could you? Well, there it is. So he says in effect, I cannot prove to you, I cannot give you evidence that God did reveal it to me, but I can challenge any other writer in the New Testament to bring forward anything like the knowledge which has been given to me of the parallel mystery of Christ. Now we'll look again. This was shared by others. Apostles, ending in S, and prophets, ending in S, are plural. So he shared the mystery of Christ with apostles and prophets. But he doesn't share the revelation of the mystery of the present dispensation with anyone. Because he goes on to say, verse 8, unto me, who have less than the least of all saints is this grace given that I, not they, or we, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. 
And he persists in this emphasis right through his ministry. Till he gets to the last epistle he wrote and he says, Timothy, you have a form of sound words which you have heard of me. And he says, Timothy, the things that you have heard of me, the same commit to other men who shall be able to teach others also. Me! He says in chapter 1 of that epistle, they've all turned away from me. And the last chapter said they're turning away from the truth. Because if they turn away from him, he was the only channel that Christ appointed to make this truth right. We're not magnifying Paul. We're only accepting the sovereign will of God who says, I choose that man to be my mouthpiece for this particular thing. And if you say, oh, I can find it all in Peter or James or John or Isaiah, then well, you must put up with the consequences of knowing a little bit better than the living God. So, the next thing we notice is this, and you'll see the, the way in which the chart has set out this feature. We have, first of all, the prisoner, for you, and then the dispensation of grace. Now we come down to the lower end, and the word dispensation for mystery comes in. You might say, well, I can't see that here. Verse 9. And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery. You say, why have you put dispensation when the Bible says fellowship? Well, our authorised version says fellowship. But I've already hinted that some manuscripts which we possess today suggest a little difference, like instead of reading the dwelling place of God, we have to say the dwelling place of Christ. Because we possess today manuscripts which were not known to those 300 years ago. We've gone back further. And these manuscripts agree to read instead of fellowship, they read the word dispensation. And you'll find that is in the revised version. Of course, the word fellowship doesn't look anything like the word dispensation in English. But if you know that the word dispensation begins with the three letters O-I-K, and the word fellowship begins with the three letters K-O-I, and you start writing that out dozens of times, and you'll see you'll get into a mix when you're writing it sometimes. That's what's happened in these manuscripts. It's been in the breakdown of the human element. Sometimes you'll find a verse written, and it's repeated all over again in the manuscript. Two verses down, well, nobody's going to say, oh, what do we do now? We say, you know what happened, the man got tired and it's there. Or somewhere else, at the end of a verse comes a peculiar word, and his eyes rested upon the same peculiar word about six verses down, and he's gone straight on and left those six verses out. But nobody says, therefore, we leave those six out. You know what's happened. So that's all it amounts to. So we've got now a dispensation of the grace of God at the beginning, associated with the prisoner, and we've got the dispensation of the mystery, which is another way of saying the same thing, associated with his afflictions, which are for you, and he says that this dispensation was his in God, this mystery, and earlier he said this mystery has been revealed. Will you get these, all these in front of you? Verse 3, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, and the opposite to that is in verse 9, which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God. That's the element of a mystery. You can never find it by searching. It's unsearchable. It isn't there to find. It's hid in God. And until he's pleased to reveal it, you'll never know its existence. This isn't a matter of cleverness. The cleverest person 
And the simplest person, just the same, they could never find it. But if God chooses to reveal it, and makes it known, well then it's available to anyone. So we've got a perfect pattern in this, you see. It was revealed, it was once hidden. And it was revealed to Paul the prisoner, and his afflictions are in harmony with his calling as a part of the program. Now we see this. First of all, in the middle section, we have the mystery of Christ, and the apostles and prophets in the plural. Now when we write down to the same letter of B and A, we have Paul alone, alone, and now unsearchable riches. That's an equivalent to a mystery. Unsearchable. The particular word here means without leaving a footmark. So the very clever person who says, well I can read all about your so-called mystery in Genesis or Exodus or Leviticus, God says I haven't left a footmark about this. Not a trace. Nobody would ever have dreamed it was there. That's the character of this mystery. Something that God revealed when apparently the evil one had put a spoke in the wheel and stopped the whole of his purpose. What had the evil one done? It so brought about the non-repentance of Israel and the blindness of their heart that they rejected Christ and were rejected themselves and they'd taken away their covenants with them, their promises with them, their hope with them and here the Gentile world left without anything. And God says, I prepared for that before the foundation of the world and the evil one didn't know it. He makes known. Through the very prisoner that's put in prison, this thing which battled the wicked one and turned it to glorious uh, good effect. And then in the centre, we have the constitution of this company. We'll go back again on our story. Let's see that we've, we've got this back out of it. He started to speak to them, but he had to stop because of his claim of being the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. He then says, this is particularly connected with a dispensation which has been given to me. Now a dispensation is the word, as you know, which is made up of the O-I-K. If you remember at our earlier study, I drew your attention in verses 19, 20 and 22 that we had six different words, all built up of the words O-I-K. A habitation, a building, all those words are all built on the word O-I-K, meaning a house. So is the word dispensation. The word dispensation is O-I-K, oikonomia. It means the administration of a house. It is translated in the New Testament, a steward or a stewardship. And the old English word steward used to be spelled with a Y, S-T-Y, a sky ward, the man who looked after the farm. That's a steward, that's a dispensation. I don't mean to say we're all being turned into pigs or anything, of course, that's only by the way. But it means just looking after some portion of God's greatest state. And here was a portion that apparently had been left. Peter hadn't got anything to say to them. He was sent of the circumcision. These Gentiles could be blessed while Israel were there. For salvation is of the Jews, but Israel are gone. But what can be done now? God says, I'm going to give that portion of my vineyard to you, Paul. And so this part is being developed while the other part is lying fallow. Israel in their blindness have taken their blessings with them, but God had all spiritual blessings reserved 
for this present calling that Israel never knew. So he says, this dispensation, this stewardship, is the stewardship of the grace of God. Now that's his peculiar character. I was intending this evening to read Acts 20, because that's where the apostle begins to visualize that he had a ministry of prison. And you may say, well, why didn't you read it? Well, because it says in that Acts 20, they wept because they discovered they were not going to see the face of the Apostle Paul anymore. I didn't want anybody to think I'd pick that out because I'm going off to America. So I took Acts 26, which speaks about the prison ministry of the Apostle Paul. But you see, in Acts 20, he said, don't worry about this. None of these things move me. Neither count on my life dear unto myself, that I may finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. He gives it that title. He said, I've got a gospel of the grace of God given me as a prisoner, and I've got the dispensation of the grace of God given me as a prisoner. Why, that's a sermon in itself, friends. Every dispensation has its own gospel. You tell that to some people, and they'll say, you're a heretic. But the dispensation of the kingdom has got the gospel of the kingdom. How simple. The dispensation of the grace of God has got the gospel of the grace of God. How peculiar. But it's a very thing you'd expect, isn't it? And that's what we find. So we have now. This is to you all. My prison, my dispensation, my gospel is to you all. Directed toward the Gentiles. This doesn't necessarily exclude an individual Israelite. If a Jew, or any member of the twelve tribes, believes Christ, puts his trust in him as his saviour, and completely abandons all hope and all reference to the promises made to his fathers and comes right out as a sinner saved by grace, there's nothing to stop him being a member of the body of Christ, for he didn't stop Paul, and Paul was a Hebrew right enough. But he said, those things which I held as gain I counted lost, so he doesn't bring with him any of his Hebrew distinctiveness. He doesn't bring any of the hopes and promises that belong to his fathers. He starts as a new creature, a new man in which there's neither Jew nor Gentile. So, while he stresses that this is to you Gentiles, he doesn't shut out the individual Jew, but he was no longer addressed to ye men of Israel. As he was, you see. When they first started preaching, it was men of Israel. Speaking to Jews only. But not so now. This is directed to the Gentiles. In, as a body. As a company. Without the exclusion of any individual. So he said. It's to you all. Held it by revelation. Let us stress again. Not by study. Not by meditating upon some part of scripture. It was given to him by revelation. He makes that claim. For his gospel in the epistle to the Galatians. He said, I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by revelation. That's his gospel. Well now he says, just in the same way, I neither received it from man, neither was I taught it, but by revelation. Who was going to teach Paul the hidden mystery which nobody ever heard of, which was hidden in God and not revealed until this moment? It's impossible. Nobody knew a word about it. And if he hadn't received it, the church today would be non-existent. 
but none of us would know where we stood or where we came in. And then he says, I'm only going over this rapidly, then he says, now you see, I can substantiate my claim to receive this unique mystery, this dispensation, because if you will only compare my knowledge of the secrets of Christ as compared with what you'll read in Peter or James or John, whoever gives you that, nobody else but Paul refers to Psalm 8. He speaks of it in Hebrews chapter 2, made a little lower than the angels, but crowned with glory and honour, all things under his feet. He speaks of it in 1 Corinthians 15, when he's speaking of the time of the end, thou put all things under his feet, all enemies subjected. He's the only man who quotes those words. Ephesians 1, Hebrews 2, 1 Corinthians 15. And he says, now consider that, and see whether you can match that with anything that anybody else has brought that out for the glory of Christ in the unfolding of Old Testament scripture. Well, I think we have to admit that he's got to the highest pinnacle, so far as that is concerned. And so he says, that's my credentials. Well, now once more we come to verse 5. Which in other ages was not made known under the sons of men. Ages. Good enough, in the ordinary way, but not quite good enough. Because, when we come to Colossians chapter 1, we read these words. Verse 26. Verse 26. Even the mystery, which has been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints. It's the same subject. But there he puts, hid from ages and from generations. Well, you ought to read the word generations here in verse 5, which in other ages or generations was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed. It was hid. It is now revealed. It says it twice, you see. Ephesians, he says it again in Colossians, and adds those words. And with holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Well, I suppose most of us agree and believe that apostles and prophets were taught their message by the Spirit. The very word inspiration includes the word Spirit, doesn't it? But that isn't what the apostles teach. I think by the time you get to follow him in his teaching and you get to the middle of Ephesians 3, You've already got beyond the idea of being argued as to whether all scripture is given by inspiration of God. You say, oh, I believe that, bless God. This word, by the Spirit, is the same expression that we've had at the end of verse, of the, uh, chapter 2. In Spirit. In Spirit. And in Spirit refers to a sphere. He's not saying that the apostles and prophets were taught by the Spirit. No, finish your bracket at the word prophets. Shall we start again? Get this complete thing in its brackets now. Verse 3. As I wrote afore in few words, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets. Brackets, full stop. Start something else. What are you going to start now? Well, if you close the brackets, you go back to where he was writing before he started them. And what was he writing about? Verse 3. How that by revelation 
be made known unto me the mystery in spirit that the Gentiles should he's explaining what the mystery is don't mix it up with the brackets leave the brackets as they are he says look in the flesh the poor Gentiles got no place at all but in spirit in this new realm oh yes he said now consider the constitution of this company and that in spirit the Gentiles should be set away and of the same body and joint partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel and if you stop there you stop too quickly why? oh he didn't say that he said and, and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel whereof I was made a minister oh yes you see because Peter was made a minister of a gospel as well so was James so was John so were a good many more but he said oh I agree but not this one this gospel that was entrusted to me. Well now let's look here. In spirit, the Gentiles, our version says fellow heirs, same body, partakers. Now the one preposition, sun, S-U-N in the Greek, <coughs> is represented by the word fellow, and by the word same, and by the word part. All in one verse. And the translators have got a terrible headache over this verse. Because there is no synonym in the English language that will give you three words, all beginning with the same word in the front, and make sense. As near as they can get is something like this. Joint heirs. Well, we can understand that, can't we? And joint partakers of his promise. We can understand that. But can you understand a joint body? There's no such thing, is there? The very essence of a body is it's got many joints and many members. And 1 Corinthians 12 sorts it all out and says there's the foot and there's the eye and the hand and the nose and cheek. Here's a constitution of a company of believers that cannot be likened to anything on earth at all. And yet it's written. This little preposition soon comes in front. A together with air, a together with body, and a, together with partaker of his promise. Because it's hopeless English. But what are we going to do? It seems to me that the very peculiarity of the words are warning us that we are dealing with something unique. Something that cannot be described or likened to anything that you can visualise on earth. So, I've got a word here, one of these many translators who was trying to give us some sense in English it's, it's, it's very cumbersome but this this is Dr. J. Armitage Robinson who has written a translation and a commentary on Ephesians and this is how he uses the expression in relation to the body in relation to the body the members are incorporate in relation to the body, all the body, the members are incorporate. In relation to one another, they are concorporate. Have you heard of that word? It's only very rarely used, but it is used. Concorporate. In relation to one another. There's absolutely no difference between any of them. In the ordinary body, 
There's a great difference between the eye and the hand, and some members you could do without, but some members you couldn't live without. But in this body, we've got a constitution where every member is on absolute equality. Talk about singing the red flag, these are the only ones you could ever sing it. Here it is in its glorious essence. Every person in the whole company is on absolute equality with everyone else in the eyes of God and in this company. Of course, in the ordinary everyday affairs, we've got our differences, we've got our different jobs to do, our different ministry and so on. But as members of this body, we must never say to one another, oh, you're only the foot, and I'm the head, or I'm the mouth, or oh, no, no. This is a body that no one's ever seen on earth. It's a susoma, as the Greek says. A soma together. So concorporate that you've got to invent words to make it speak. I've got another extract here. Nothing to do with ex- exposition of this scripture, but I couldn't help lifting it out. Sir J. L. Myers, speaking about Persia, Greece, and Israel, with the concept of the word polis, meaning a city. He said this, fundamental principles of such association, not necessarily related by blood, now he's got a word, isonomia. He's got another word, isegoria. He's got another word, isotonia. Now you say, well, what's all this mean? But you can hear the word iso three times, can't you? And that means or oh, surely a geometry, an isosceles triangle, equal, equal. There's some equality is trying to be established in this idea of a city in which there's a Persian, in which there's a Greek, and in which there's an Israelite. Now, how can they establish a, a unity there with those three? He says, well, there can be an isonomia, an equality of assignment in material and social amenities. No difference between the house you live in and the house you live in. That gives you isonomia. And then isogoria is equality of utterance. Nobody gagged. Everybody allowed free speech. And then isotalia, equality of function or responsibility. I thought to myself, well, you know, that's a little bit like the Apostle was stressing. He says, here is a, here's a, an eye, a conception of a city in this eastern part of the world, in which you could have a Greek, in which you could have a Persian, in which you could have an Israelite, and they could have a threefold ISOS, equality. And Paul says, here you have a company in which you've got a bigger mix-up than all that lot together, and they could have a perfectly marvellous unity. When you begin to face that fact, friends, you will understand why when Paul starts writing the fourth chapter, and tells you how you're to walk worthy, he doesn't say, first of all, to walk worthy of this calling, you must start a campaign, you must run Bible classes. He says the first thing is to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, one body. And if you fail there, all your other efforts are wasted, because you've ruined the very thing you're out to maintain. You see so we're, we're on vital ground here. So we go back to verse 6, and he says, Now this mystery, which I'm entrusting to you and passing on to you, contains this threefold equality, that the Gentiles in spirit should be fellow heirs, perfect equality, 
Fellow members of one body, we've got to slip the word member in, but we ought not to have to do it. And fellow partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel, whereof I was made a minister. Now if that is taken at its face value, this is utterly impossible for us at the self same time to say, oh, well all the mystery means is that once the poor Gentile was shut out of the promises made to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and now he's let in. Well, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob had never got promises like this before. Never heard of them. The only place that a Gentile can have when the Jews on the scene is to be a wild olive contrary to nature. But there's no wild olive contrary to nature here. This has blotted out all inequalities and they're all absolutely one in Christ. Well, then he goes on to speak about the way in which it's was entrusted to him. Whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. You notice how many times he refers to that working of his power that he introduced in chapter 1. Here Paul's ministry is connected with the effectual working of his power and when he gets to the answer to his mighty prayer at the end of chapter 3, he says in verse 20, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all we ask of him, according to the power that worketh in us. Still there, that power. But you see, that power has been effectual in me to make this note. But he, he does stop for a minute. He says, you know, you make me a fool in me boasting. He said those words once, didn't he? Only for the glory of God he said, I've said these things. I would never have said them had I, had I not felt that I must. He says, you won't think I'm putting myself on a pedestal, will you? I'm having to say unto me, me, I can't help myself because I'm the only channel. But I wasn't picked out because I was better than anybody else. In fact, he said, I was not worth, I was not worthy to be called an apostle. I persecuted the church. Peter didn't, but I did. I wasn't worthy. He said, unto me, less than the least of all saints. And you forgive, forgive a man when he says a thing which is impossible. Because it is impossible, isn't it? You can't be less than the least, can you? You have a tried. There's nothing less than the least. But you see, when you're feeling things very, very deeply, then you could have to appeal to figures of speech. Doesn't Shakespeare put the words into the mouth of one of his characters? That was the most unkindest cut of all. Bad grammar, that. But there was the word of the heart. That was the depth, wasn't it? So here. And to me, it is not. Less than the least of all saints is this grace given that I, he's not boasting now, is he? He's only standing back looking at himself and marvelling. That I, our version says, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and make all men see. Possibly we should translate it, that I should illuminate all. Not only make them see, but at least give them the light whereby they may see. What is the dispensation of the mystery? which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God. And the rest of the words are not found in these ancient manuscripts. To the intent that now, under the principalities and powers in heavenly places, might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. God had a reason for bringing this dispensation in as he did. He got principalities and powers to think of as well as human beings. And here was God's foreknown opportunity to teach principalities and powers something of his wisdom. Isn't it marvellous? We've been saved and selected to be object lessons to those mighty 
spiritual power. So watch your step friends, because they're learning through you. Isn't that wonderful? And then, according to the eternal purpose, which most of us know should be twisted the other way around, according to the purpose of the ages, which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith, and that includes faithfulness of him. So that he is now closing his brackets, ending our survey. Wherefore I desire that ye faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. So is that where he started? My prison is for you Gentiles. My tribulations are for your glory. And presently he's going to add another statement which is very, very difficult really to analyse. He says in Colossians 1, with this we finish, verse, at the end of verse 23, whereof I am made a minister, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. Somehow related to the ministry of the church of the one body was inextricably mixed up the sufferings of this earthen vessel. His sufferings that didn't procure our salvation, but his sufferings were connected with a faithful stand for it. By the very time, moment he enters into the scripture, we read, to whom we yielded subjection, no, not for an hour. That wasn't an easy position to take. And the Lord said, He's a chosen vessel unto me. I will teach him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. So, we're facing again another mystery. Why one person should endure such sufferings for the benefit and blessing of others, we shan't fully know until we know all the puzzles in the presence of our glorified Saviour. Well, that brings us to the end of these studies in uh, Ephesians, the first seven sections, except the one meeting which will be taking place, God willing, in a fortnight's time, when I want to bring before you all these seven sections as one subject, because they've got an interrelationship, and you ought to see them all together. And then, this recording will have taken the whole survey of this section and be completed. What we're going to do, if God permits, after the uh, visit to America, well, shall we wait and see? Because most likely, all our plans would have to be very much altered.